The reading from today is from 1 Samuel chapter 16, and it's on page 287 of the Church Bibles. 1 Samuel 16 on page 287. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I pray that you would speak uh, to us today, this afternoon, through your word, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would surface what you want to surface, and that you would minister to us and teach us. In your son's name I pray, amen. Some of you will know that we have just come to the end in a matter of hours to a very important uh, week of the year called half term. So if you know, you know, you know that thing, uh, yeah. So it's half term um, and uh, we've had a wonderful half term. Um, it's been really great, um, but my wife had to go to California for a work trip uh, on Wednesday, so uh, and it's the middle of, of term for me, so it, it's, it's been a little complicated at, at some points, and, um, but I was very grateful on Friday, just when the wheels were kind of starting to fall off. Uh, I, had, uh, I, I realized, I discovered um, that the new Spider-Man movie had come out. Uh, Spider-Man, 
uh, Across the Multiverse. It's the sequel to the animated one. It's very exciting. Um, and uh, it, it does occur to me that my life can be measured out in Spider-Man movies, um, not because I particularly am think of my life that way, but because uh, since I was started university, there have been 10 Spider-Man uh, movies, 10. Um, uh, but in fact, the last two are the best, the cartoon ones. They're amazing. They're really, really good, including the one that we, we just saw. So anyway, I was thinking about this, though, because there's a core dynamic in these movies, and part of what makes it uncomfortable, but then also satisfying. Some of you will know Peter Parker is a superhero. He got bitten by a spider. He has superpowers, but he's also a high school student, and he uh, has to hide his identity. Uh, and so he ends up in a lot of situations where people think he's being, he's being a bad friend, a bad boyfriend, a bad student, but really it's because he keeps having to stop villains along the way, so he's late for everything and, and so on. And it's, un it's uncomfortable because we know that his heart is in the right place, that he's actually trying to save the day. Um, but, uh, but other people don't know that, and it's, uh, it's very sad. They're judging him by these outward things, and it's not, uh, they're not judging him nicely. Uh, and it's also why it's so satisfying when someone finally does find out that he's Spider-Man, not because he's powerful, but because it means his identity is integrated with his, his, his heart, how he's seen and how he really has become integrated. Anyway, I was thinking about this uh, for many reasons, but one of them is that this passage is in fact about the difference between judging on outward appearances and what's going on in the heart. Uh, this is a passage, this is one of the great passages in scripture about why God thinks the heart is what matters most. It's an extraordinary moment, this, uh, this story. It's a classic um, Old Testament moment, part of the origin story, as it were, of King David, the greatest of all biblical heroes, uh, being anointed by the prophet Samuel to be king, the second king of the people of Israel. But it also conveys in two sort of short strokes two really powerful ideas, two truths about how God is and what we are like that I think that I really want to focus on. And one is that God does not see as people see. And the other is that God looks at the heart. So we'll get to these. But first, this is a passage, more so than some, where to understand what's going on uh, in the text, you have to understand the backstory. The backstory in 1 Samuel is Saul. Saul is the first king, and he's not a great king. He's notorious for being the sort of negative foil or contrast to David, basically. Um, and uh, there's a kind of ongoing character study in the book, in the, the line that is the, our, our sermon series, you know, a man after God's own heart, that's in contrast to Saul. So there's some things to know about Saul, who at the time of this is, is still king, at least in practice, although God has decided he isn't really. One thing I hadn't really realized about Saul, but it's very present in the text, is that he was very handsome and very physically impressive. This fact is mentioned uh, at least twice, possibly three times, including at the key point when they say, surely this guy should be the king. He's so handsome and he's so tall. So 1 Samuel 9, 2, Saul was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else, which uh, I assume is where we get that expression from. So he's a big guy as well, powerful looking, I assume. The other thing about Saul, which is maybe better known, is that he had this history of kind of wavering and second-guessing and not quite following God's will completely. Um, when he's first called to be anointed, he hides in the baggage. He goes and hides in the luggage and has to be found. He's, I don't know why, but that's what he does. 
Um, a key moment is when he's waiting for a battle to start, and he is about to do the sacrifice to the Lord before the battle, and um, he was told by Samuel to wait seven days, and then Samuel will come, and then they'll do the sacrifice. Seven days pass, and he's like, ah, uh, do I do the seven days thing, or do I do the wait for Samuel thing? He does the seven days thing, the sacrifices before the prophet Samuel arrives. This was the wrong answer, and his kingship is then is told his kingship will be taken away. He also later uh, doesn't do what the Lord says with the Amalekites. He spares the Amalekite king and his cattle, his best cattle. So these are why he was not a man after God's own heart. They're sort of subtle. He's serving God not quite right. Um, he's, I think, with the battle in particular, with the sacrifice, I think he was, he was worried about the battle. He wanted to win the battle. He needed to have a sacrifice to God to win the battle, whereas someone like David would have cared about God, uh, not about the outcome of the battle. I think that's kind of what's being drawn to us. Anyway, so that's the background here. So just, let me just read again a couple of verses. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, so the eldest brother of David, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's an amazing line. It always sticks out uh, to me, but there are two lessons in it. The first is that God does not see things the way that we see things. There is a mismatch between our perceptions of the world around us, of what's going on and what matters, and what God sees and what God cares about. Those things, there's a mismatch. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. And what we're told in the passage, what are these things that people look at? Specifically in this context, they look at beauty, sort of the, his, he's handsome, we're told so many times. Uh, Saul, you know, is, is handsome, and then the, the eldest son of Jesse is, is also handsome. Um, he's also tall, like Saul. Uh, so this someone who looks attractive, who looks um, uh, appealing, charming, like a leader. Um, the other thing people look at is strength. Saul was physically big, so it appears was, was Eliab, head and shoulders and all that. Um, in those days, I assume that meant something to do with physical prowess in battle. This person's going to be a warrior who can lead our people to success. Also, uh, people look at being a firstborn male. People assumed that it would be Samuel assumed that it would be the, the firstborn, um, not the youngest. He wasn't even important enough to be brought along to this event. And it's interesting that Samuel does, he falls into this, he, he misperceives things too. It's not just Saul who does things wrong here. Here, Samuel is, uh, he, he's, he, he thinks it's Eliab, and he's totally wrong. So Saul had power, talent, various conventional measures of importance and success, at least according to appearances. And this is what we do. This is the wisdom of the world. We look around and we judge things based on outward appearances. An example that is, um, I can't help but think of in a way, um, in this particular town and in my particular job, um, universities do many things. Universities are places where we learn about the world and produce knowledge and we pass on knowledge to generations uh, along the generations and, and so on. But another thing that universities also do, especially universities that have a brand name like this one, is they are kind of marketplace for markers of social prestige. 
When people are applying to come to this uh, university, they are applying both to learn and all these wonderful things and to get a stamp of approval according to appearances. Um, and that's very clear when you spend a lot of time interacting with people who are, who are trying to get in, as, as I do. Uh, so it's a classic form of kind of outward appearance to say, well, this person went to Cambridge. They must be uh, worthy of being king. I learned about uh, a, another um, example, uh, a term that I think is extremely funny, and I think a lot of people already know this term, but I did not know this term until I had to apply for promotion uh, a little while ago. And uh, this term is called um, KPIs. Who knows what KPI is? A key productivity indicator. I was told that in my promotion application, I needed to really emphasize my KPIs, my key productivity indicators. And I assume that every, every, every job, every part of the world has its own version of these. In academia, it's prestigious international invitations, publications, people who, uh, a number of people who apply to work with you, these kinds of things. But these are, these, these are literally external markers of, of, of prestige. Uh, and that's what my university cares about when it assesses me. But it's not just, I think this passage is partly about this kind of what, what work success and, and, and um, uh, kind of ambition and who's going to lead and do well. Uh, it's, it's sort of it's criticizing our natural ideas about that. But um, there are lots of other ways that we do this. I mean, anyone who is a parent, maybe you're not thinking about KPIs in relation to yourself, but you are thinking about your kids. And not because you think, hopefully not, <laughs> because you think that uh, it, they need these things for their own sake, but because you hope that they'll be happy if they, if they can get a great education, if they can become economically secure, if they can receive these sort of kudos from the world of various kinds, then hopefully they'll be happy and secure. Um, and so you worry about these things. And, and even with little, little, little kids, you sort of worry about developmental milestones. You know, you're instantly told all these things, this kid can read, that kid can't. Uh, it's a, you know, we look at outward appearances, we look at those sorts of things. But God does not look at the things that people look at. I do want to say, I don't think this passage is actually about making people feel guilty or bad about look, seeing the wrong things. It's obviously not good to misperceive in this way, but that's not what the passage is interested in. Samuel is not reprimanded for thinking it's Eliab. He's just corrected. It's just what we do as human beings. I think more of the point in the passage is that these things we look at, these external things, they're just bad indicators of reality. They aren't as good as we think they are. They're bad heuristics is the fancy word. Um, when we look to these sorts of things to guide our actions, to frame our anticipations of the future, we will simply prove to be mistaken, at least on the things that matter. We will misunderstand what really matters and we will miss what God is actually doing. And this is because you and I are creatures of God. And that means that our path in the world is not the world, the, the ladder of prestige or the maximizing of, of KPIs. Our path through the world is a pilgrimage. That's the old powerful image. In this story of David, the deepest story, the truest story is not really the political one or the military campaign, though those are, those are the context. The real story is about God's call upon his people and his call upon David and his call upon Saul. Saul's pilgrimage goes wrong. David's does not. In 1 Peter 2, God's people are called pilgrims and exiles. 
I love this. There's a quote from St. Augustine who describes this sort of sense of Christian life as a pilgrimage. He says, supposing then we were exiles in a foreign land and could live, only live happily in our own country, and that being unhappy in exile, we long to put an end to our unhappiness and to return to our own country where we, where we belong. We would, of course, need land vehicles or seagoing vessels, which we would have to make use of in order to be able to reach our own country where we would find true enjoyment. But then suppose we were delighted with the pleasures of the journey and the very experience of being conveyed in carriages and ships. This whole analogy is about really liking being on boats, I think, but anyway. And that we were converted to enjoying what we, to enjoying what we ought to have been using. We were unwilling to finish the journey quickly. We were perversely captivated by such agreeable experiences that we lost interest in our own country where alone we could find real happiness. Well, that's how it is in this mortal life in which we are exiles away from the Lord. David's pilgrimage, he doesn't get lost on the way, and Saul does. So the world of appearances is a world that doesn't see the deeper reality, the spiritual reality. Now, it may be that, of course, our pilgrimage may dovetail with the world's ideas at various points, and that's fine. As uh, we find out towards the end of the passage, David actually was quite handsome, too. It's not just you, Saul. Um, and uh, as we learn uh, yeah, in, in, in verse 12, and then the whole rest of 1 Samuel is really uh, telling us about what a great warrior, what a successful warrior he is. So he actually has these things. But the point is that these aren't what the Lord looks at. And before moving on to my sort of second and shorter point, I just want to underline that um, the fact that God doesn't look at what we look at is very good news. And I think it's good news because the things we look at crush us. These outward markers, we serve them, we spend our lives focused on them in different kind of ways, and often and we, we fail, or it turns out to be arbitrary, uh, or who knows what, but these things cannot give us what we need. I remember, I mean, again, you, look, you can get a, there's always going to be someone's kid who makes you feel bad about yourself as a parent. That's just a law of, of parenting. Um, and uh, so to look at, at these outward things is, um, yeah, my, my kid could read when they were two. Um, that kind of thing is, uh, it crushes us. So it's good that God is not interested in these things. It's freeing. In God's world, our future is not determined by how talented or successful we are, how beautiful, accomplished, rich we are. So my first question for you is, are there ways in which you are looking at appearances in the world? You are focused on the wrong things. In work, at home, just somewhere in your heart. And also what appearances are crushing you. Returning to the passage. So David was handsome and mighty, but these are not the reasons he was chosen to be king. There's only one reason David was chosen it is the reason that he stands alone as the greatest of all the biblical heroes. And this is that he was a man after God's own heart, 1 Samuel 13, 14. In all the ways that Saul was prone to wavering, to trusting the Lord up to a point but not further, David was different. David had an unerring instinct for putting the Lord first in all things, especially in these, exactly the sorts of contexts where Saul got it wrong, David would have and did get it right. It doesn't mean he was perfect, but he had this instinct for the Lord. So this is the second great teaching in our passage. It's this. In God's eyes, the most important part of a person is their heart, their inner thoughts, feelings, motivations, their loves, 
the part of them that is not visible to others. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Theologically, the heart is also where holiness is located. There's, no, there's, a, there's a reason <laughs> that the heart is important. It's where holiness is located, and it's where sin is located. The Sermon on the Mount teaches us this. There are many t- passages that teach us this, but the Sermon on the Mount says it's your motivations. If you, your desire to murder, your desire to commit adultery, these are the things the Lord is looking at. The outward act is, is not actually the main thing in the eyes of the God of the Bible. Okay, so when I read this passage and I hear that the heart is what matters, I think that's great, but I also find it makes me a little worried. It makes me worried because, rereading 1 Samuel this past week, it was not David that I related to. It was Saul. That premature sacrifice thing, it's sort of haunting me. I definitely would have done what Saul would have done. I would have kind of thought I did the right thing. I don't know. I think that you and I very often, if not always, are not David, but Saul. We don't have the right hearts. But things have changed since David's time. This world in which God is waiting to judge your heart, you're a Saul or you're a David, we don't live in that world anymore. We live in a new dispensation. And ultimately, especially in the New Testament, David's greatest significance is understood not to be his brilliant kinship, kingship, brilliant though it was, not his mighty and righteous works, not even his psalms. Paul tells us what matters most about David in Acts 13. In his uh, his sermon to the synagogue at Antioch, he says, when God had removed Saul, commenting on this very passage, he made David the king of his people Israel. In his testimony about him, God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, to be a man after my heart. Of this man's posterity, God has brought to Israel a savior. Jesus, as he promised. I said before that David's story is a pilgrimage. It wasn't just about the politics and the battles. But ultimately, the most important part of his story was that in David, through David, God was preparing to send Jesus, the one known as the son of David. Now, there's a lot, there's a whole sermon here about how the coming of Jesus means that we aren't waiting, or God isn't waiting around for us to have clean hearts in the way that he otherwise would have been. He's not sitting around waiting for us to become Davids instead of Saul's before he meets us, loves us, engages with us. Because of the son of David, we can bring our wavering hearts, our confusion, our uncertainty, our sin to God without fear. So to conclude... God doesn't look at the things people look at, but he does look. Today, right now, God is looking at you, and God is looking at me. But he's not looking at the things people look at. He's not looking at your job or your talent or your education or your KPIs. He's not looking at how good of a parent you are, your professional successes or failures, your beauty, your skill, your social status. But he is looking at you. What's he looking at? He's looking at your heart. So I ask you, and it's not an easy question to answer, actually. What is on your heart today? What is there? What's in that place? What is he seeing? What are your longings? I think very often hearts have longings, sometimes that we don't even articulate. 
Hearts are also often full of fears. We spend a huge amount of our life avoiding things we're afraid of and not quite being honest about that fact with others. What's your heart set on in early June 2023? Maybe it's a person, a relationship that's gone wrong, a kid you're worried about, some future event. And maybe you don't know exactly what's on your heart. Maybe that's the prayer. God, what is it? What's really driving me here? What's going on? Now, I want to say it's not God looks at the heart. That doesn't mean that everything in your heart is great and is of God and is what he, you just look in your heart and you'll find like all the Disney movies, you know, and you'll find out what's, what's good. Um, that's not the Christian vision, unfortunately. But it does mean that what this passage means, that what is on your heart matters, good or bad. It matters, matters to God. It means that your pilgrimage will be mapped out by having a conversation with God about what is on your heart. There will be a back and forth, but the material for that conversation is here. You know, he may say no. Sorry about that longing. He may say maybe, but have you considered something else? He may distract you completely by some completely unexpected uh, event in your life. He may give you the desire of your heart. He may ask you to tell him more but it's in that conversation that the future of your life will emerge. So I have two concluding words. The first is that God is looking at what is in your heart, and he is loving you right now. He's not dubious about it. He's not bored. He doesn't think it's trivial. He's not withholding himself until you figure yourself out. Maybe you didn't even know that God cares about you like that, that he's thinking about you and the things that really matter to you in your heart of hearts right now. Well, I'm here to tell you, he does care. You are on his mind this very moment. I'm reminded here of a short story by Rudyard Kipling called The Gardener that is very wonderful, and I'll just say it very briefly, but it's, uh, it's based on the line um, about Mary Magdalene seeing the resurrected Jesus and not recognize him, and she goes away supposing him to, or she supposes him to be the gardener. She doesn't recognize him. And it's the story of a woman in early 20th century who uh, is, basically, she gets pregnant at a time when that was, was very problematic. She goes away. She then pretends to have adopted her cousin's baby. Uh, but actually it's her own son, and no one knows, even though the story itself doesn't really quite tell you directly, but clearly the baby, the boy, is, is hers, uh, though no one knows, it's only in her heart that this is known. And this boy grows up and eventually dies in World War I. And the story, at the end of the story, she goes to find his grave in France, and it's the sea of graves, and she can't find him, and she's very upset. And she's carrying with her this whole life of love and feeling and grief uh, with this, with this, for this boy that no one really knows about. And there's a, someone there, there's a man who's planting something in the ground. And she goes and asks him, can you help me find where my nephew is? Because that's the lie that she tells. Can you help me find my nephew's grave? And uh, the passage says, he looked at her with infinite compassion and said, follow me, I will show you where your son lies. And she doesn't even clock that he's said son rather than nephew. And then he shows her the grave and it says, and then she went away, supposing him to be the gardener. It's an image of God's infinite care 
his infinite compassion uh, for whatever it is that matters to you. That's, those are the eyes that are looking at your heart. And the last brief word is for you to consider that at the deepest level, your life and my life is not what the world thinks it is. The story of our life is not a rat race or a ladder to climb. It's not really something that we control at all, at least at the deepest levels. What it is, rather, is what it was for David. Your life is a pilgrimage. The thing that matters about it will not ultimately be in these appearances. It will be what the Lord sees and what the Lord thinks. And the Lord does not look at what people look at. Dear Lord, I pray that you would speak to each of us to reveal the thoughts of our hearts, the burdens of our hearts, and minister to us. Help us to see our lives as a pilgrimage, as a calling, as a journey, and to put everything else in right perspective. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.